Thanks for joining us for the Minor Tweak Major Impact podcast. We're excited to have Trida Martinez as the guest for today's episode. Trida is a wildlife conservationist and a third year doctoral fellow at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. For her dissertation research, she's studying the effects of barrier in Bay Island restoration on brown pelican demography and reproductive ecology in coastal Louisiana. She focuses on utilizing non-invasive techniques to gain a better understanding of how organisms utilize their natural habitats. Trita's work aims to aid in the conversation of her study organisms and communicate ways to inspire generations after her to do the same. Trita, I would like to welcome you to the Minor Tweak Major Impact podcast. Hi, Anita. Thank you so much for having me. I am so honored to be here. Before we even get started to talk about your research, can you please tell us a little bit more about the Bay Island restoration initiatives that are taking place in coastal Louisiana? Yeah, totally. So billions of dollars at this point and multiple decades have resulted in the state of Louisiana really taking an important stance on restoring the coastline, including Bay and Barrier Islands. Specifically, these Bay and Barrier Islands are really, really important for seabirds and shorebirds, such as the brown pelican. And we have things like the roseate spoonbills that use these islands that really, really need them in order to finish their reproductive cycles. This is where they're going to lay their eggs. This is where they're going to raise their chicks. This is where their chicks are going to learn how to be real birds. So without these islands being here and without the restoration practices happening, these birds would be in a pickle, I guess you could say. I'm not really sure where they would nest otherwise. If they decided to nest on the mainland, there would be way too many human interactions and even predators like coyotes and raccoons. So that's the initiative that the state of Louisiana has taken on. And I'm really grateful for it. And I'm sure the pelicans are too. Wow. And how does it look like? Like, how do you restore an island? Okay, so the main way that I've seen since I've been out there for three years now is they lay out miles upon miles of these massive metal pipes, like from the island all the way down to the sea floor. And they basically pump using a lot of energy. They're pumping sediment from one place, like on the sea floor, all the way onto these islands. They're putting enough sediment to where the islands are high enough and basically stable enough in order to like take the impacts of wave actions. So every day, you know, the waves hit the islands and like the sediment gets taken out, but then some sediment comes in. So that's the biggest way. Another way that they try to restore these islands is by placing some sort of rock barrier. Louisiana doesn't really have rocks. <laughs> There's no like big mountains anywhere around or anything like that. So they basically have to haul in rocks or actually boulders. They're, they're boulder size. And they either wrap these boulders around the islands or they create something called breakwaters. So they place like certain sections of rocks in front of the southern part of the island in order to like help with the wave action reduction. Wow. That's a crazy initiative. And I had no idea before I started looking into your research that that is actually happening. And these kinds of restoration practices take months to years to complete. So it's a lot of work and a lot of manpower. That's crazy. So we already heard in the introduction that 
You have a very exciting research project. Can you please tell us a little bit more about your dissertation research and what exactly you're working on? Yes. So I am currently studying how these restoration practices affect brown pelican populations. The brown pelican actually went locally extinct by 1936 and it's our state bird. So I'm trying to play my small little part in making sure that doesn't happen again. Because these restoration practices create a lot of change. I mean, that change would never happen normally in that small amount of time. So I'm interested in understanding Are these changes positive? Are they negative? Are they neutral? Because these changes are not necessarily made to help wildlife. It's made to reduce the wave action that's going to hit the coastline and to protect human infrastructure, which is also important. But there is definitely a way to protect human infrastructure and human lives, as well as helping out the wildlife that utilize these spaces. That's super interesting. And I'm very looking forward to hearing more about the techniques that you're using to work on that later on. But can you tell us how and when did you get interested in studying wildlife or more specifically those brown pelicans? And I think on Twitter, I also saw that sometimes you're calling them dinosaur floofs. Yes, like it was just one of those fun things that came to my mind was the term dinosaur floofs. And now I just made it into a hashtag. <laughs> But it's mostly because before I started like hands on working with brown pelicans, I didn't realize how floofy they are. They're really, really soft. And they are dinosaurs or related dinosaurs. And so I was like, this is great. Like they look like dinosaurs and they're floofy. So why not call them dinosaur floofs? But to get back to your original question, I got interested in studying wildlife like from when I was a kid, before I even knew that this could be a job. I've always been interested in wildlife. I knew that I wanted to work with wildlife. I just didn't know how. And my one thought was being a veterinarian. I was like, I can totally be a veterinarian. And as I got older, I realized that was not the path I wanted to go down. And so as an undergrad, I ended up getting a National Science Foundation research experience for undergraduate, which is an REU. And that totally changed my world. I was like, whoa, scientists are real. Like I knew they were real, but like until you do it yourself, it's almost like, oh, I'm not really sure what they do but I know they exist. And just getting the hands-on experience totally changed my world. That's super cool. And I saw a lot of pictures of the dinosaur floofs on your Twitter and on your website. And I'll be sure to link all these things so people can check them out. They're so cute. So a lot of the work that you do, I imagine, happens out on the fields. But is that like most of your work? Or do you also do experiments in the lab? Like how does your typical work life look like if you're in a lab? And I'm not sure if right now maybe it has changed because of coronavirus, but can you tell us a little bit more about that? It's about a 50-50 split between field work where I collect my data and then doing work on the computer. I don't really run experiments in the lab. So it's mostly a lot of statistical modeling that I do, as well as looking at my camera trap data. 
So I basically have a lot of photos I have to go through and analyze to get my data. I'm currently collaborating with Dr. James Nelson's lab here at the University of Louisiana Lafayette. And he's actually sending a bunch of feather samples out to get their isotope content. So they're going to figure out what fish these pelicans are eating. So that is the extent of my like experiments in the lab. <laughs> okay, that's interesting. And when you're going out on the field, how much preparation goes into planning a field day? And what does a typical field day look like for you? Yeah, so it's quite a bit of preparation. I utilize around 50 camera traps. And camera traps are basically these hardy looking camouflaged cameras that are motion censored. So I put these out on pelican nests so that I can monitor them throughout the breeding season, which goes from about mid to late February all the way through July. And this just gives us a way to monitor them without having to disturb them every single day, all day for five to six months, which is good for the pelicans and good for my feet. <laughs> Another thing we do is utilize surveys. So things like vegetation surveys, we have a whole protocol on that. And we're basically trying to see what is the biodiversity like out there? Because plants play a huge role in not only helping to stabilize the island. So like the roots help the sediment stay on there. So these restoration initiatives are just going to last longer. But the pelicans and other birds that use the island also use these vegetations to not only build their nest with, but also build their nest on. So we have how well are the pelicans doing when they're breeding? And then how well are the vegetation standing on the island? And with the collaboration with James Nelson's lab, we're also doing drone footage of the island. So we can get a really, really in-depth look at how many pelicans are actually using these islands because we can actually see them and count them as well as count how many nests and things like that. Wow, that sounds super cool, the drone footage. What are some challenges for the techniques that you're using? Like, for example, setting up these camera traps, that sounds like it's quite a big effort. Is this something that is very common in your field? Like, do people do that all the time? Or did you have to figure out how to do that or yourself? What are some challenges that you're facing with the techniques that you're using? Yeah, so I have a lab mate, Paige Byerly, who actually used camera traps in the Virgin Islands to study roseate terns. Pelicans are a little bit different because they're not ground nesting birds and they're also bigger and they're not nesting on cliff sides such as the terns were. So they were a little bit more elevated. And so, oh my gosh, so many things went wrong my first year, like so many things. So because of these islands being, you can imagine an island in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico being completely surrounded by water and it's not that tall. The footage above sea level is like three feet which is nothing because flooding happens all the time. So we have to make sure that these cameras are high enough that they don't flood, but also low enough that when a pelican moves, it's going to trigger the camera to take a photo. So our first year out there, we were using eight foot garden poles. So plastic circular poles. And that was the worst idea ever because the cameras just spun around. There was nothing really holding the camera in place to the pole besides this one strap that came with the camera. So then we, we realized we needed something else. And I decided to screw a bunch of nails in to the pole, this plastic eight foot pole. 
that also was a really bad idea because it still wasn't stable enough. And the reason we initially used the plastic pole was because it was light and we have to walk about two, three miles. And now, fast forward, we have since learned that six foot metal fence poles actually work best because they have a grip on them that we could strap the cameras to. They're also a lot sturdier and the camera can't like swing when it's on these poles. So... (laughs) That was probably like the biggest challenges was making sure that the camera was capturing what we wanted it to. Yeah, that sounds like a big challenge. So you did have kind of like a minor tweak, major impact moment already with the camera setup because it really matters how you set it up. But other than that, did you ever experience any minor tweak, major impact moments in your research? And with that, I mean, is there anything that maybe you set up and you expected it to work a certain way and then it didn't work like that? Or maybe you tried to repeat somebody else's experiment and it completely didn't work that way. Anything like that ever happened to you? Yeah. So actually, we put out GPS tags. So in collaboration with another postdoc that used to be in our lab by the name of Farah Giri, we're putting out GPS tags on adult brown pelicans. So they can fly. They're really strong. They know they don't like us. (laughs) And the only way to catch, well, not the only way, but the best way to actually catch a brown pelican is to run really fast if you have a permit. Obviously, don't do this if you don't have a permit to actually work with brown pelicans. And Once we catch them, we put the GPS tags on them so that we could follow their movement. This GPS records a location every 15 minutes. And this one island, just I have five islands that I work on. And for some reason, we could never find a pelican on this one island. We even left our equipment out overnight in hopes that we would find one to come back with the GPS tag. We knew the pelican was fine because the chicks were still there. And in order for a chick to be alive, it needs both parents to take care of it. But for whatever reason, every day that we would go out there, the one parent that had the GPS tag would not show up. So I'm just walking around with this metal antenna looking thing trying to find a pelican. And COVID this year actually stopped us from trying again because we missed our window, which was April and everything was shut down in April. So we're going to try again next year. But things like that and the camera traps are definitely one of those like minor tweaks. And the data from like all the other islands definitely have a major impact. We learned that they don't really overlap that much. So if, for example, a pelican on island A doesn't really cross paths with a pelican from island B, and that is probably due to competition for resources, and they're just avoiding each other to decrease that competition. Wow. And the pelican that you tried to find, do you know what happened to it or you never found him? or Yeah, we actually never saw any of the five pelicans that we GPS tag on that island. We didn't see a single one of them, which is kind of sad. We know they're okay, though, because I went to go check on all of their nests and all the chicks were fine. And this was over a period of two months that I was looking. Yeah, I wonder what happened to them. They were just never there the day that I was there. That's basically it. They're fine. Maybe they had a feeling you're coming and then they're like hiding or something. I know. Isn't that so rude? (laughs) (laughs) 
Great. You mentioned a lot of things already. And I think all the work that you're doing, it sounds super exciting and a lot of fun. But what is the most exciting part for you to study birds or pelicans? Or you can have multiple too. I think there's a lot of exciting parts probably. I think the number one most exciting part is like I have a permit to be in a seabird colony. And seabird colonies are huge. Like there's so many different birds and they are all just nesting and they're having chicks and these chicks eventually grow up and they're all big and they start walking around and not a lot of people get to experience that because you need a permit i keep saying that because i'm like don't disturb the birds but that's probably the most exciting part is every year i get to see these baby birds that most people don't get to see grow up and i mean that's such a privilege i feel extremely lucky to be able to do that Yeah, and baby birds are super cute. They're so cute. Yeah. <laughs> Great. And then our last question, usually I ask for a tool in the lab, but because you're in the field, I'm going to ask it a little bit different. But if you were allowed to make a wish for a tool on the field that would make the life of researchers easier or your life easier, what would that be? And this is our fun question. Any answer is allowed. I feel like because we have cars that can drive themselves, there should be a way For my camera traps to stay alive the whole field season because I have to go out there every two weeks to three weeks and change out the batteries because they die so I feel like there has to be a way and I know solar panels exist but that's not really helpful in saltwater conditions with the potential of things flooding so that's probably my like oh my gosh if there was anything I wish there was a way that I could like have these camera traps out there for six months and maybe only check on them every like month, a month and a half. But there is one thing that I know is possibly like possible to make and that's banding pliers for brown pelicans. In the beginning, I was like very, very skeptical and I thought it was the hardest thing to band a pelican. I'm pretty good and fast at it now, but it would have been really cool to have specific banding pliers for brown pelicans because right now we just use needle nose pliers because that doesn't exist. Those are great ideas. And maybe somebody's listening and they'll work on these ideas. I know, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> great. Trita, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your stories and insights on the Minor Tweak Major Impact podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. That was so much fun. This is your host, Anita, and we look forward to being with you for our next episode. This program was produced by H Media. We'll see you soon.